Hello, hello. Hello. And welcome to the New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall, but for the ghosts. Before the ghosts. <laughs> um, but for all the ghosts, we're so excited to be back with another episode. Um, today is a really special episode. Um, and before we get into it, we just want to thank you all for sticking with us during this really, really crazy series all about Nexium. Um, it's been really um, hard to report it all, mm-hmm. but we, 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 we're, we're really happy that the story uh, is getting the notoriety that it deserves to get. And the people who have um, committed these crimes are, are getting the... the the consequences um before we get into this incredible interview today we are chatting with sarah edmondson Ah! um the most incredible powerful awesome human being we have just so lovely so so sweet and lovely and fun and what a great human what a great human we invite you all if you haven't yet to uh head on over to our new merch website below the collar.com slash ny mystery machine and uh we have three fun designs of t-shirts on sale we'd love to uh see you all supporting the uh the old the old, the old, uh, the old podcast um so let's just right get right into it you know sarah edmondson is an accomplished actor voiceover artist and author her book scarred is an account of her time in Nexium and Das. It's available wherever you buy your books. She also hosts an incredible podcast with her husband, Nippy, called A Little Bit Culty. Love the name. Love it. Love the show. Uh, it is available wherever you stream your podcast. So when you're done streaming The York Missing Machine, go, go on over there. Go on over there. Uh, without any further ado, uh, Sarah Edmondson. Sarah, we're so happy that you're on the show with us. Thanks um, for having me. Of course. Uh, this is, you know, we... At the beginning of the season, we had um, Spencer Schneider and Sir Friedman talking about their experiences with the um, uh, Odyssey Study Group. I swear I'm good at my job. The Odyssey <laughs> Study Group. And uh, we're just so happy to have you uh, off air. I, I was saying that just I just messaged Sarah out of the blue like during you know Thanksgiving break and she got back to me really quickly. And so just really grateful for this opportunity and just to chat and just learn a little bit about your journey and just chat about things that are a little bit culty which i think is like the best name for a podcast thank you well, as you can see i'm putting <laughs> hard here um yeah whatever you want to know i'm a very much an open book so Amazing. ask away thanks for having um, me yep. i'm wondering if you could just um share a little bit about your your introduction to nexium um and you know i know it was through esp so i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that introduction was like how you First like how I, how I got recruited or or how what my five day was like oh um I was thinking recruited but I'd be curious about the five day too if you're willing yeah sure um I'm I don't know how many of your listeners have watched the vow I'm assuming that you have yeah yeah, yeah we and we also um previous to this um we just did two two episodes just chatting all about Nexium. um the vow and all that stuff so it adds a little bit right. so you're the third of a of a, of a trio series Fabulous. So I do talk about this in The Vow, but as a recap, I was brought in through Mark Vicente, who I had met at a film festival. And it was at a time in my life where I was really looking for meaning and more purpose, not feeling super fulfilled by my acting career. And when I saw what the bleep at the time, this is, keep in mind, like um, almost 20 years ago, it was a really profound film. And it didn't really matter what he was doing. I just wanted to do it with him as I really respected him. I love the film. Just so happened that what he referred me to was executive success programs. And there was a, a training 
serendipitously, it seemed, in Vancouver just a few weeks later, and I jumped in without researching it and just was taking another personal development program, which I'd done a fair bit of already, so that was not that new to me. Um, but yeah, my five-day was a mixture of really wonderful tools that I thought were great and helped change my life at the time, but I was also very skeptical and had a lot of red flags that I didn't know were red flags. Um, if I knew what I knew now, if I had seen the vow and then done my five day, I probably, I pr not only would I have left, but I probably wouldn't have gone in the first place because I would have felt the pressure to sign up, not from Mark, but, um, somebody else that was at that film festival that was chasing me around with an application, trying to get me to put a deposit down and save 20%. Um, so yeah, it was a, mi a mixture of those things, but ultimately the five day sealed the deal for me to want to bring all my friends into the curriculum um, and then later that ended up turning into um, bring the bring the tool set to the tech they called it to Vancouver opening a school there which I did four or five years later and make this my life which is what I eventually did it, it, it went from just using the tools in my life to making ESP or now we know as Nexium my life and cut to 12 years later uh, shit got really dark and weird and my husband and I and a handful of others went to the authorities. They didn't know what they were looking at. We went to the New York Times. That article triggered an investigation and a trial. And Keith Ranieri, the leader of Nexium, is now in jail for 120 years and five years probation. So Which is that's incredible. The, that's yeah. the, really the whole story right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember... My introduction to all this was I remember when the Times article came out because I think it was my birthday. So weird. I think it came out on my birthday one year, probably 2008, 17, 18. And um, I was like, huh, interesting. And um, and then I have a weird, a, a, a weird like Allison Mack story because mm. in April that next year, I was working on a show and I saw her name as someone was coming for an audition. And I, I was like, this is so weird. Like, isn't Allison Mack like part of this like weird Nexium thing? It's so, I don't, it's weird that she's auditioning, and she came in, she auditioned, she left, and then I think two weeks later she got arrested, and I was like, that what? And it was just really, and then, and then connecting those dots when the vow came out was just a really fascinating thing. And I remember what what I appreciated about the vow was I always tell when I first started watching it, I was telling people about it, and I was like, it's so interesting. This first episode, you watch this first episode of the vow. At the end of it, you're like, I don't know, this sounds like a really cool organization. Like, I can get my shit together. Like, oh, that's that's the point. Like, that that first episode just kind of, like, letting you, like, in on the world of right. Nexium and, like, why people will join this yeah. group. Because, like, yeah, you want to better yourself and, and better, better, you know, each other. And so, yeah, I just think it was really a really fascinating thing. I was very happy with the vow because of that. And that even people who were in my life that didn't participate for whatever reason – said things like, oh, oh, I get why you join now. And, you know, if you showed me that, then maybe I would have tried it. Like, you know, you dodged a bullet. But I, I really appreciated that the filmmakers wanted to make something that wasn't salacious and um, <clears throat> show the, what was behind sex cult uh, headlines. Yeah. And that's the thing, too. I, I, I think in terms of it's now gotten, you know, this this kind of the label of being a sex cult. But I remember I was listening to one of your interviews and how Mark had described it as being a group of humanitarians. Was that something that, like, was clear or, or started to morph along the years? About what, what it was or wasn't, you mean? Yeah. Or, 
I mean, it seemed like it was a group of humanitarians at the beginning, absolutely, yeah. with some of the projects that were underway. Um, and then it, there was things that happened that were like very contrary to that, that that didn't make sense to me. And that was actually one of the one of my many, many red flags that I kind of put it. If you listen to the podcast, you'll hear we use this metaphor a lot called putting things on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't. And, and also in a lot of high control groups that are religions, uh, especially like the Mormons, they talk about like you just shelve it. You just like, this doesn't sit right, but I can't wrap my head around it. So put it on the shelf. And you keep putting things on the shelves and when that one day it all breaks. And one of those things was just how like not humanitarian it was. And I, there was one particular story that it's kind of long to explain, but the long and short of it is that Claire Bronfman was having a surprise party for one of my dear friends at her home. And I asked if I could bring a friend of ours from Vancouver who was really good friends with a girl whose birthday it was. And I just assumed that that would be okay. And she's like, she said no and she said it's she's it's her house and that she was she's not invited essentially and i'm like aren't we like community humanity like why wouldn't it just couldn't make sense out of it and i was really pissed because they were friends we were all friends but claire wasn't friends with my friend anyway so it's it's complicated but it was just one of those things that was like it just didn't make sense to me given what we were trying to do and that's such a like petty little small thing but there were lots of things like that that just seemed the opposite or like somebody getting sick and then starting a GoFundMe to pay for the treatments and then us and then I, and then me participating in that and getting in trouble for like supporting her parasite strategies like she shouldn't be doing medical treatments she should be doing more of the Nexium tech to oh, wow. this health issue yeah shit like that and like this is when we are supposed to be humanitarians and like helping each other and then and I can't do that anyway mm. that kind of thing right Absolutely. That's interesting, too, about the idea that, you know, doing more Nexium would overcome a medical issue or, or you know, could uh, supplant medicine in some yeah. way. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a lot of belief around that. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. And so you, you mentioned, you know, this idea of putting things on the shelf. You've mentioned, um, you know, that there are these red flags that, you know, but the way they frame it, right? The way they frame it is, is um, I think you've called them preempts in other contexts, mm. right? You know, sort of mm. preemptively um, situate your, you know, the group to like, well, no, um, you know, you're supposed to feel discomfort. That's growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about some of the ways that, um, you know, they frame some of these things that at first glance might sound like really um, helpful concepts, like a limiting mm-hmm. belief about yourself and how yes. that sort of gets manipulated into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. I think that actually in our, on our podcast, Nippy and I just finished recording for our Patreon. We went through the 12 point mission statement and broke down every point and like what was good about it and what was bad about it. Mm-hmm. And what you just said really highlights that like, yes, it's good to be aware of like discomfort. Um, and there's times like if you're in real therapy, for example, it's uncomfortable to look at your shit, for lack of a better yeah. word. Um, but in those feelings is also your intuition. So the bad of it is that if, if, and this is what they did, they preempted by saying, if you feel uncomfortable, it means there's something to look at within mm-hmm. you. Like if you don't like the sashes, there's you probably have issues with authority, which you know likely is true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. They have authority issues because of some bad teacher or a run-in with the cops or like, you know, from 
issues relating to their parents, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't want to be, don't like being told what to do, or they don't like feeling less than with the, you know, the sashes and the ranking and all that stuff. So there's, there's elements of it that have truth in it. But the fact of the matter is, is if your gut is saying this isn't right, you need to listen to that. And slowly over time that got dismantled because we were, would override it going, I'm just, I have an issue to work through versus mm-hmm. I need to go. Right. And, and and every single, I think every single good tool that I, that I got also had the flip side of how it could be used against you. Like another tool or like concept in Nexium was speaking with honor. Mm. And mm. you know, that's great. Like you, if you have an interaction with somebody that's negative, you can speak honorably about that person or you can speak dishonorably about them in a way that's like upholding the person as a person who also has struggles, mm-hmm. you know, and that I, that's still something that I try to do, but it also protected Keith from anyone saying anything negative. Because if you were to say like, isn't it weird that Keith like looks kind of like a schlub, which is something that people would say, or like looks kind of just like a normal dude, that would be dishonorable. Well, okay. You yeah. Know? Or, or like if someone even questions, you know, but how do we know that Keith even has a 240 IQ? That'd mm-hmm. be like anti-tribute, which is the opposite of what we we're supposed to do is always being paying tribute to, to anything that you want to pay tribute to, but specifically to him. Mm-hmm. 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 So tribute's a great thing. If I could be like, oh, wow, like I, um, you know, for you as, like a, as a playwright, you're, you're a playwright, right? Yeah. Adam? Yeah. So like you said, as a playwright, like I learned from, I don't know, who's your favorite playwright? Uh, Miller. Miller. Okay. I so much Henry Miller and like whoever Henry Miller, right? Arthur Miller. Oh, Arthur Miller. Sorry. Who's Henry Miller? Um, Henry, he, he, he exists. He- Henry Miller is somebody else. Arthur yeah. Miller, of course. Um, death of a salesman. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's been a while. <laughs> so it's all good. Anything theater related. <laughs> uh, did see that on Broadway, uh, many moons ago. It was fantastic. Anyway, my point is, is that you could say, you know, from Arthur Miller, I learned this and, you know, I am who I am today because of, you know, and this drama teacher and it's really like self-defining to figure out who you are because of other people in your life, teachers, mentors, whoever. Um, so there was always so much tribute paid to mm-hmm. like who we were because of Keith and because it's a Nancy. So the opposite of tribute was saying anything negative. So you just, we were just like so afraid to even express a concern or anything that wouldn't be like upholding him. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's fascinating to, you know, how, and just from seeing the vow and, and hearing about just how many people in the arts were involved in Nexium. Mm-hmm. I think that that is such a, an interesting place to get members because I mean, I acted for a minute, but then I spent most of my life as a director and a playwright, but knowing actors and also just being an actor myself at one point in, in the journey, just that craving for acceptance that we artists just have, like we mm-hmm. want to be better, we want to better ourselves, and we want people to want us. And I yeah. think that that kind of feeling at, at, is so, it's it's almost like a gold mine when, when, when these organizations come into play because like, yeah, we can totally make you feel wanted. We can totally help you do these things and so yes yeah 100 percent. i mean that's was a huge part of my motivation i mean other more altruistic things like you know humanity and community and meaning and all this stuff but it definitely felt good to be um validated and they certainly played to mine and many people's uh desire for for validation and and feeling like, you know, belonging, which is, I think, like, when I say community, sometimes as an actor, especially when I got into film and TV from theater, it's like, wasn't very community oriented, you know, it was very mm, yeah. isolated, 
you know, and I miss that. I miss the camaraderie of the theater. Um, and I also really appreciated this new tool set for my emotions. Mm -hmm. Like I really felt like, oh, I can access anger. Like, I, accessing anger was always something I was, I struggled with as an actor. And then I, then I learned how to access that and be access my motivation and to be able to turn on like, like I felt like I had a button that I could press if I need to be mm. excited, you know, if, if I, I do, I was doing more voiceover at the time, but like to be excited that like the robots were coming, you know, and mm -hmm. how to, how to access that emotion in an authentic way. So I think a lot of actors were drawn to the program for a number of reasons, like you said um, already, Anna, but also there was a whole tool set that we got around business acumen, mm. which a lot of actors and artists didn't have. And that's, that was actually the primary demographic in Vancouver is young artists, a lot mm. of actors, a lot of musicians, a lot of writers, because all of a sudden we were able to help, help them navigate like all the skill sets you need to be an artist. You can't just be talented. You have to also be able to communicate and, you know, get an agent and pound the pavement and hustle and all the things. Right. So, but to your point, yes, largely about feeling feeling validated and, you know, getting the applause. Yeah. That's interesting too. Just the idea that it, you know, it's more holistic than that. It's, it's validation, it's community. It's, it's the business side of things, um, which is something that thinking about to our conversation with um, Spencer and Esther, you know, it was also that sort of holistic feeling of whatever aspect of your life you were looking to work on. There was something in the group that could help you with that. So when did you and Nippy meet? Cause I know it was through the group, right? Yes, we met in Nexium. Um, I want to say a year into my time there. I, I joined two thousand five. I met him in two thousand six, and we were friends for at least three years before we started to to date, take it to the next level. Um, and also, he lived in New York, and I lived in Vancouver. And so, how did things start to change when you started planning for your family, your relationship with Nexium, or with um, Keith, or any of the other uh, key players within the mm -hmm. group? Well, there's what I perceived at the time and what I can see now and, you know, with full hindsight, mm -hmm. but at the, at the time it was, all, I mean, even just dating Nippy was frowned upon mm. because, yeah. and I didn't know, really know why, but now I think because Keith had been trying to, was angling for me. And mm. I think the, the guy I was dating when I joined Nexium, like we broke up three years in. And I think that that was largely the upper ranks pulling strings. Oh, wow. It wasn't it wasn't a directive like you guys need to break mm -hmm. up, but it was casually tacitly part of my coaching because I was going up the straight path and he wasn't. And it was sort of like, well, you guys are growing, you know, apart. And what does it mean mm -hmm. to be with somebody who's not at the same level of commitment as you? Mm. That kind of thing. Um, and we're still friends, uh, mm -hmm. ironically, and we laugh about this. But the, I do think they tried to break us up because Keith was was trying right. to, to get me. Right. Wow. Failed. Yeah. And I miss, I'd miss the cues. <laughs> so like, because his, his, uh, tactics aren't as overt. Like they, he had a whole strategy of like bringing people into a particular project and then starting to mentor them and then taking, taking them under his wing. This is what I've learned from people who've left. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah. Yeah. And it's something, it's certainly something that we've, for those who have watched the vow, especially season two of the vow, which really, I remember watching season one and I was like, I'm, I'm sick. I feel gross. And then 
I was like, well, it can't get worse than this. And then season two comes around and we find just just the the sheer amount of abuse that, that Keith caused just in terms of... of in every direction. In every direction. Um, every direction. It, yeah. I mean, in the insanity of it all and just the 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 scope of ages and and family and all that and just that just this this um his constant journey to to keep getting more and more which i you know i think is really his downfall obviously i mean i remember talking to christine just before i was like it's so interesting because so many things happened um to kind of lead keith to jail but the fact that the guy recorded everything wasn't the smartest thing. I mean, like, you, you watch season two of The Vows, like, gosh, this guy records everything, every conversation. And yet, thank God he did, right? And, because and yet, that's... here we go. Here we yeah. have a docuseries. And I, I think it was in season two when he says, you know, we'll record all this so that people can always look back and know, yeah. like, you know, truly what a good man I am or who I am or something like that. And like, well, it didn't turn out quite that way for you, buddy. Right. But a lot of narcissists do that. I'm not sure if you've watched Stolen Youth on Hulu. Mm-hmm. I haven't. Oh, it's yeah. really, it's really good. It's really, really. Good. I mean, it's heartbreaking and devastating mm-hmm. and super triggering, but it's really good. And they, and that cult leader, um, Lawrence, Larry Ray was also, I mean, he's like textbook Keith and he recorded everything. And that's like a huge part of what the documentary wow. is and was, you know, evidence used against him. He just went to uh, 60 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Wow. And And you guys had already been recording things just in terms of having record, knowing that. Oh, we recorded everything. Yeah. Everything was recorded. Any performance, anytime Keith spoke, there was always somebody like recording with their phones. If I had a meeting with him, it'd be like, okay, this is meeting March 2nd uh, with Keith on a walk and we recorded it. And it was, it's two things. One, it was that like, it was taught us, it was taught to us that if we were, especially with Keith, that if our shit came up and we were like, in a disintegration or having a moment of whatever that we'd be able to play back and be like, Oh, he said this and you get it right. Mm. So like, it would be, it would be proof. Um, or like, you know, so you refer back to it. And also it, everything was like when he did a forum, there was like two camera, three cameras on him. There were people recording and also taking notes, like timestamps, like, and somebody was in charge of recording humor. Some people were in charge of gathering quotes and it was like all put into a data bank that was going to be the like the Keith Raniere library so it could be like all the times he ever spoke about global warming or flatulence or self-love or whatever and they would all be there like everything he's ever said about anything that's what they said they were doing the library of the genius so yeah it was often even recorded but with a camera it was often recorded on phone and oftentimes multiple recording Mm -hmm. devices and then towards the end of your time there you and Mark had all been recording just on your own, just for your own sake and safety. Yeah. Yeah. Just for like, just to, we were record, like he was recording me and didn't tell me, like he told me like before he knew that he could trust me. And those, hmm. that, those are the conversations that are in the, in the vow. It's like, right. he's asked, there, there, there's one that where he's like, either, I forget what he asked me, but there's this pause. And that's like such a specific choice point of whether I'm going to answer him truthfully or lie to him and tell Lauren that Mark knows what's going on. And that's when I, I had, I chose my sides in that question, in that moment. I didn't know I was being recorded. I didn't know that it was going to be in the vow. Like I didn't know any of that. And it's so like, 
it's in retrospect it's so i mean i i can't imagine just the the sheer fear of just like not knowing who to trust like not knowing yeah. especially as you said just before just spending so much time in this community and spending so much time with each other um and the 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 influence they, ha they have in each other's lives weddings celebrations all these things and just not knowing who you can turn to for help because all of your so many of your closest people are all in this part of this group already yes yeah and I, what what was good is that i was already doubting by the time he reached out to me and i was trying mm -hmm. to figure out how how to like get out of DOS, not even knowing what I was about to find out, just knowing mm. that like it was not, it was no bueno. <laughs> it's not what I signed up for. Oof, wow. We have to take a quick break, but we will be right back with Sarah Edmondson. See you in a minute. The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff, such as mini-episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. Head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and join our ever-growing community today. Okay, we're back with Sarah Edmondson here on the show today. On, on that on that front um and you can again please say as much or as little about anything as you want um can you talk a little bit about how dos was first introduced to you um yeah sure and i will say that my foray into dos is very is probably the most complicated part of this whole journey where people can't wrap their heads around it which is why i wrote the book <laughs> yes uh, yep. um because i felt like i needed to just get it all out in my own words. Even, mm -hmm. even the vow, which I love, doesn't really explain the steps. Um, so I'm going to refer people to that, but basically say that I was invited to what was supposed to be a, a boot camp for women and a secret society, a secret group, a sorority that was going to change the world. And this was, it was definitely exciting and cool sounding, but also super intense and um, uncomfortable, which again, meant I was doing it right. So I missed those red flags and I was invited by Lauren, who is at the time my, you know, my, one of my closest friends, our son's godmother. She, she married Nippy and I. So it was kind of like, if I had said no <laughs> to that, it, it would have had really, I mean, who knows where it might even still be in action. This whole thing might still be going if I had said no to it, because I wouldn't have. I guess it, I think it probably would have fallen apart soon after anyway. If it wasn't even if it wasn't us, like it was not a sustainable model to blackmail women and brand them with Keith's initials. So he was very much not in reality about what that was going to look like. I think. And one of the things that I think is so important. Um is that the idea that so many of the steps to getting you into DOS and to agreeing and to, you know, all of those things have been normalized throughout the process, yes. right? So things like collateral had already been a part of how you show commitment, right? 
Yeah, Collateral was a big part of the Nexium community for, I want to say, at least four years. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, so that, again, it's, it's just part of that whole, um, what am I looking for? The whole, the whole atmosphere. The zeitgeist. The zeitgeist of, exactly. Yeah. Um, where, like, it, so it won't immediately. Yeah. Yeah, so many things were normalized. Like, someone was asking me the other day about kissing on the lips, and I was like, hmm. it's normalized on day one. Right. Like, that was just, if you were uncomfortable with it, it meant that you had a intimacy issue. And like, you know, people in other cultures kiss on the lips all the time. What's weird about it? You know, like that was sort of like, go get an EM if you don't like it. Right. Right. Uh, can you um, talk a bit about the turning point for you and your relationship overall to DOS to Nexium and like that, that process of, you know, that journey of escaping, of getting out, of um, uh, removing yourself? Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll preface it with also that I didn't really realize until getting out and like reflecting and even writing the book and looking at my emotional journey and the decisions that I made is that I was withdrawn, like pulling back um, when I had Troy, when we, when we had our son, mm -hmm. which was like three years before we left. Mm -hmm. and, and it just gave us sort of an excuse to have a bit of space, you know, and there was a couple of coach summits and like mandatory retreats and things that like we were allowed to not attend because I'd just given birth or um and like, like my brother got married like so it's, there were some things that we like didn't go to and having that space mm. to also be aware that my you know my values had shifted my priorities mm. had shifted it went from like personal growth and you know when I started creativity arts and creativity like being an actor was like on the top and like yeah. family and love and you know personal growth and by the end like personal growth was like you, it, it kind of had to be if you were going to excel in that framework. And so then when I when we had Troy, it's like personal growth was lower. And we had actually heard after we left that Nancy had, was shit-talking us and said, well, Sarah, ever since she got married and had a baby, her inner deficiency was filled with those things, which is oh. kind of true in not but not the way that she meant it like yeah. in the way that she meant it is because we have these things these inner deficiencies in nexium and we're always searching to fill it with our success and you know like that's what they say as an actor you're looking for the validation which because we feel we lack self-love which is why mm. we're looking externally there is truth to that i think that's what mm. drives a lot of people if they were totally self-fulfilled they wouldn't necessarily have those same desires but it also makes it like really bad to want attention and validation which is super normal do you know what i mean right. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's like, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a challenging thing to wrap your head around. But like, what's truth about what's true about it is that my priority shifted, and that was more meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. You know, so she was right about that. That filled my, my void in a way that was more meaningful than how Nexium used to. Mm -hmm. So that was happening, and then when DOS came in, it was like I needed. I they were trying to lock me down like lock down my loyalty and keep me in. And when I committed to it, the bait and switch of, hey, it's this badass bitch boot camp. And like, no, actually, you're going to have to give collateral every month and send nude pictures to your master and that the deed to your home. And like, it just kept getting more and more controlled. Um, like it, it, it went from being like, this is not just uncomfortable. This is bad and wrong. Mm hmm. But like, how am I going to get out of it? Not knowing the depth of how how much it was in Nexium, like how much it was related to Nexium in this part. 
and pump my own book for a minute, like the last third of the book is this part of my, of my journey is recognizing the truth through, you know, finally having open and honest conversations with people like Mark and recognizing that we couldn't just leave, which is what we we were first going to do when we figured it all out. Um, and by figuring it all out, it was enough to leave. It wasn't nearly what was revealed later, like in the trial and what you see in the vow. Um, our story is just like a tenth or not even a very small percentage. I don't know the percentage, but it's much smaller than what we ended up finding out. So yeah, we decided to to leave and we tried. We, I was like kind of a double agent for a few weeks mm-hmm. where they didn't know why I was leaving. We had a, we, Nippy and I and Mark and Bonnie and Catherine, we all came up with this plan of how we could leave in a way that would make it look like it was just our issues, which is mm-hmm. we'd we'd heard from previous defectors. You can't say like you guys are bad and we're out of here. You'd be, you'd be like, well, you know, it's it's. Ba- I'm basically made it look like I was choosing my relationship, and that mm-hmm. was consistent with what they had said. I, you know, my dependency. I was filling the void with Nippy, so now I'm gonna I'm gonna choose him over the company, and that see that was it vilified me enough to. Um, for them to let me go. They didn't know that I was going to like take down the company, which we were doing behind the scenes and letting people know about the branding. And a lot of people just left when they knew that we were there. At, at first we didn't tell people about the branding because we were, I, they had collateral on me and I was still afraid of it at that time. So we were just saying that we're leaving. We can't say why. And for so many people, many of whom had never even met Keith and Nancy in Vancouver, they're like, well, Sarah and Nippy aren't doing this. And like, clearly something bad happened. Mm-hmm. I'm out. The people who stayed were the ones that were had moved, you know, most of the people that stayed, the ones who moved to Albany or were super committed in a way that they either had some, we suspect that they'd given collateral to or had invested too much and were trying to, you know, um, what's the, the term in psychology, the sunk cost, you know, get mm-hmm. their money, get their money back, get their money's worth. Right. Metaphorically. Right. Yeah. So I imagine also having that because you never moved to Clifton Park, right? You, um, I imagine that having some of that physical distance also was important for your ability to sort of, I don't know, extricate or have that that distance a little bit to see, um, yeah, to get yourself out. 100%. I think that's actually what ended up saving me because I, I stayed mm-hmm. in Vancouver. We did have a home that we, it's like we called it our crash pad. It's a bit of a frat house vibe, like, no beds just like mattresses and <laughs> some lamps it was a very sad place but we, we we had a place to stay in the last mm-hmm. uh three years um but yeah keeping my home in vancouver and keeping my my acting community and staying in voiceover gave me something to go back to and in, yeah. in a way that i think a lot of the people that stayed loyal and didn't leave didn't have anything else to go back to yeah, yeah. i mean i i i just appreciate and every time i i hear the story i'm like man they left and then they were like, we're not just leaving, we're going to, we're going to burn it down. Mm-hmm. And just the idea of really taking it down and, and finding those solutions, um, you know, uh, in the end, because it wasn't the New York Times article that kind of put the kibosh on it, which is insane that like this was not enough. Mm-hmm. What was the thing that really finally takes, takes your organization down, so to speak? You know, we found out afterwards from, Karen Untreiner, who was actually like one of Keith's first girlfriends from college, who helped mm-hmm. him run his first business, CBI, and also um, Nexium. And, and we interview her on a little bit called me. It's one of my favorite episodes. 
mm-hmm. but she shared with us that what because she was in charge of like she was an actuary and did a lot of the accounting and like the the payments and the commissions and stuff one of the things that really crippled the company was that we asked um students to call their credit cards and say mm. not only stop the payments because people were on these payment plans for like mm-hmm. the rest of their lives not only stop the payments but to tell tell their visas and mastercards and american express that, that they wanted a chargeback oh was, wow yeah so when you have that many chargebacks the credit cards and the banks freeze their accounts and that that was that disabled them so i think that that she said that that was like when things like actually stopped but um i know that when we left in june uh and then the following august was vanguard week which is normally like 350 to 400 people that v week was like less than 100 people so we we had already made a huge dent a few months later then the new york times came out and then keith was arrested and i i mean different people fell away at different parts i always found it fascinating to see what it caused people to what caused people to wake up mm-hmm. you know and as you probably know from the battle there's still people that still aren't yeah aren't, 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 we call it waking up it's, and waking up to me is just like the recognition that keith is not who he says he is right and once you understand that everything else falls away mm-hmm. if you believe that keith is good or like it's like in mormonism that like god is real and speaks through this man you know like there's mm-hmm. there's core beliefs that hold everything in place right so as soon as soon as like for example there was one um green sash one of the leaders from mexico i won't say his name just because he hasn't come public with his story but Mm. he stayed way after we left and he was a really good friend of ours i thought and like didn't want to talk to me because i'm so dishonorable right remember that i'm dishonorable i'm suppressive i don't play tribute i'm a parasite all the things anyway so he left when like he'd gone to keith and be like what the fuck like women are being branded and he was like i'm not i had nothing to do with this like how do you think i feel to know that these women branded my initials on other people like how horrific for me and mm. and this friend of ours was like felt bad for him mm. he'd been like wrapped up in the in the and and was pissed at the women for for fucking up nexium myself included and allison and lauren like guys come on you're so irresponsible then one of the first um what's the term legal term affidavit it's like one of the things that the government sent that was public um about oh i think it was based on like why he shouldn't be let out on bail thank god because if he had he would have been on a jet to fiji right heartbeat right and why he shouldn't be out on bail and part of that um i think it's called an affidavit it's like a legal i'm gonna sound super dumb in this area it's okay it's this document from the, from the prosecution, from the, from the government saying, you know, here's, and they showed excerpts of some text exchanges between Keith and one of his slaves. And I think one of the terms is that he said, I want you to find a groom of fuck toy for me to have. And talks about like the initials um, being his monogram and like what that, you know, giving directive. And then this, this is just like the beginning of the evidence of right. so much more that yeah. came out later. But for example, it took that in there for this green sash, green being like one of the highest levels. Right. You're like, oh my God, I was just lied to by Keith. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that person wakes up, then tries to get Claire out and go to Claire and be like, look, this is what the FBI has. And all Claire can say is that was all planted. FBI are corrupt. That's not real. Not real. Can't see it. Can't see it. And that's, yeah. 
So I think that people, I don't know if I, this was an answer. I don't even know what question you asked. I'm going to talking about it's, this, but. It is okay. Yeah, it's just people fell away slowly over time and there's a handful left, as you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think back when you, and how it's depicted certainly in season two of The Vow, just the the group of people that have stuck by Keith. I, and part of me feels like, is it a matter of once they admit to themselves that it's it that he's not who he is where does it leave them i i wonder if it's a lot of that like where do i go from there spending so much time energy resources i mean the the work that they have done in order to try to clear keith's name is just insane like just time and effort and spending time outside of his holding cell for all those months like all that I, I, yeah, I can almost say to myself, if I was, quote unquote, not woken up yet, I finally wake up. Where does that leave me after yeah. all these years? Honestly, some people um, are think that it's better if they don't wake up mm. at this mm. point. Because that's like, you know, I know I was embarrassed when I woke up, having been involved for so many years and thinking about like, you know, all the networking events that I went to where I tried to pitch this shit to like, really amazing people <laughs> you know and and for them to go oh yeah that looks great like i'm really i love that journey for you like and the, knowing that and they're like she's totally on a call and and that i didn't see it couldn't see mm-hmm. it just thought they didn't understand like it's a it's a it's a lot of shame that we've already had to deal with they're the amount of shame that they're gonna have to deal with is i don't even i don't have a number on that 10 times as, as much 80 times i don't know never mind all the sex stuff too like Right. You know, some of these women went down to see Keith before he was arrested and they were going to participate in a group blowjob ceremony as a recommitment to DOS after, because things were falling apart. Right. Like, that's public knowledge. Right. Yeah. Came out in court. Like, that's horrific. I wonder if you could, you know, you mentioned that there's there's a lot to deal with no matter when you come out, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you wake up, so to speak. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit about what the... I don't know what the right term is, but the process of healing has looked like for you and how maybe sharing your story is, you know, part of that, I imagine. Um, mm. You know, it, it definitely a part of it. I think that there's, it's funny, I was just talking to somebody who is the victim of a an acting culty person who, ironically, I took classes with years ago and found it too culty, so I managed to avoid that one, but <laughs> ended up in this one. And, and he was like, oh, I, you know, I spoke off the record about this teacher for this, there's a magazine article about to come out. And he was like, I, I'm feeling ashamed about that. Like I should have been more brave like you. And I was like, oh my God, don't even think like that for a second. I have a different responsibility because this is how I, how I see it. I've, you know, I was, I was a recruiter. Like I brought a lot of people in. This is how I need to, for me, clean up my mess. Mm. And so being public, being loud, shouting from the rooftops, like I was at a call, I made a mistake. And like, this is why is how I, how I've healed. I mean, it's been six years this May, June that I will have woken up and it's my healing has, has changed very much throughout the time. It's, it's gone from, you know, the first year of like literally being on the phone every day with people trying to get them out and then like disappearing for a while when I was pregnant and trying to like step back from everything, healing while pregnant, you know, trying to stay not stressed and calm and creating a loving and warm, safe environment for my baby and then having a baby and then the vow and then writing a book and then the vow. So it's, got, it's been like waves, like 
oh, I'm totally healed. And then the vow comes out, comes out and I'm like, holy shit, my life just blew up in a very weird, stressful, but also wonderful way. Um, but I, I think the most healing thing, and this is separate from, and we talk about this a lot in our podcast and perhaps maybe the subject of a second book uh, is, you know, the things that I do to take care of myself in terms of like hot Epsom baths and walks in nature and microdosing, you know, things like that, like that, that I do to stay healthy. But I think the biggest, most cathartic part of my healing has been public, being, being public, doing things like the vow now, the podcast where people reach out to me and say, Hey, I don't know if you'll ever respond, but I was able to get out of X, Y, and Z because I saw the vow or heard your podcast or read your book or whatever. Like that is the most rewarding, meaningful healing thing that I could, that I can do. Cause I, I joined Nexium for all the reasons I told you, but also cause I love to help people. And now I actually get to, so um, that's, that's where I'm at. I mean, right now I feel pretty normal. You know, I feel like a pretty, like my life is pretty normal, except, you know, we get recognized out in the street, like almost daily. And it's not, it's a, it's a very, very, very validating, warm, um, experience every time. It's not weird. It's like people, people, sometimes people want to share their trauma and their story. And I don't, don't always can't always in the way that I'd like to, you know, given in terms of the time that I'd like to give to it, but it's, it's me. It's like, it somehow makes it all worthwhile. This last crazy two decades. And I wonder too, if you could speak just a little bit about, you know, what, what do you hope in that vein, what do you hope people will take away from your story or what, um, you know, what, what do you hope people who have a loved one who are maybe getting into a high control group would do to, you know, create a net, a, you know, a safety net for the person mm -hmm. when they're able to come out or, you know, any sort of those big takeaways that yeah. happen. I think the thing that I want, you know, two things that I want people to know is that number one is that they're not broken and that it's okay to, to like go on a journey of personal development or self-betterment or whatever. But like, if you can start from a place of like, that you're okay, then you don't, you're not, we're not going to be looking as much externally for the guru or the answers and that there is no one way, there is no right path for anything. And anyone who says otherwise is full of shit. So, and I, I you know, I also want people to understand the red flags so that if they go to a group and someone's love bombing them or encouraging them to be isolated from their friends and family or to not look at certain information or news sources because it's fake or whatever, like I, I really want people to understand what to look for and to trust their gut if they see it. And if they do see something that's off, not to go to the leadership, they need to go to some somebody outside or like Google it. And if there's smoke, there's almost always fire. If there's allegations against this company, if there's lawsuits, like stay away because that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, but in, in terms of family, so many good resources out there. I want to direct people to a little bit culty.com slash resources. And there's great books and podcasts and TV shows and things that I think are really helpful, in, but especially combating cult mind control and by Stephen Hassan, who's amazing. And they really go over like, the specifics or he really goes over the specifics of like how to like what not to say to your to mm -hmm. someone you're worried about but the main thing of the, the nugget i'll share is like don't ever say you're in a cult but yeah just to ask questions and and to be loving and supportive and try not to be judgy and see if we can get information in there or sit down with them and like watch the vow like oh have you seen this let's watch tiger king and then the vow you know and right. see 
Because sometimes seeing it in another group makes right. it more obvious. Mm. That makes total sense. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little about A Little Bit Culty. It's my favorite name for a podcast. I think it's so gosh darn clever. Uh, when did you decide to start it? And kind of what's the goal and aim of it? We started it in COVID. And after The Vow came out, we were approached by a podcast company, um, Citizens of Sound. And they reached out and they're ex-evangelical Christians. And they said, we really relate to your story. We think you should make a podcast. And we were like, isn't like, isn't that I wrote a book. The Vow is pretty expansive and they were just like we think people would want to know more and we actually posed that to our instagram audience and said who want you know who wants to know more in the form of a podcast and pretty pretty close everyone said yes except one person and that was my assistant and she said no because i'm so busy and she's she's right it was a big big thing that we a <laughs> uh, big bite we took off but we we really have been enjoying it so much um once we decided to do it somebody reached out also from that post and said yes you should make it. it should be called a little bit culty and you can look at all things happening in the cultiverse and that was just tardy she came up with the name and she's our producer and, and and nbf that we've actually never met in person which is crazy but she we just like followed her direction and we made this podcast that went from a little thing in our living room to i think we're about one hundred and twenty-five thousand downloads an episode now wow. which is pretty wild and it's it's our career now. It's our full-time job. We have merch and we get to talk to whistleblowers and advocates and experts. And a lot of, a lot of the people who are experts are also ex-cult members themselves. And that's been like the, the access that we've had, especially to people like Leah Remini and Mike Rinder, who were from Scientology in the aftermath mm-hmm. and to be supported by people that were our pace cars and we were leaving people that we aspired, you know, tribute in a positive way tribute to leah and mike for showing us how it could be done yeah so we we've we've been so lucky i feel like this space has just been so supportive and welcoming and now i get to do that for others and have whistleblowers on there was we had just had a whistleblower who was on a show that like i could just tell that she needed therapy and she's like i can't afford therapy right now because like i've started my whole life again and one of our listeners anonymously wanted to pay for her therapy and paid. Wow. And so I like was able to get her, you know, 40 weeks of therapy through an anonymous donor. And that like, that made me really happy. <laughs> I could do that. Yeah, It's so crazy because like you, we hear such, such horror stories about like people like Keith and, and, and the awful things that happened. And then at the same light, you see like these just generous, like good people in the world who are like, yeah, for every like, really crappy person there are a few like really awesome eggs who really want to help people and, and move them forward and and i think yeah i think that that's gosh what's what a beautiful thing um mm-hmm. and it's available wherever you listen to, to podcasts yes um and they have merch and the merch is really 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 dope you guys will see i post a picture of us and this really cool a little bit culty hat <laughs> um and of course your book scarred is available wherever you, you get books as well yes Yes. Amazon or any bookstore. And by the way, I've had this removed. I had plastic surgery a couple of years ago and it's gone because fuck that. And for those of you listening, the that that Sarah's talking about is the scar from the brand that shows prominently on the cover of her book, Scarred, uh, as well as what was featured in the New York Times article uh, back all those years ago. Was that what, what was that? What was the journey of that just after it was all over? I mean, I spent a lot of time money, energy, resources, oils, creams, 
treatments trying to get rid of it and and eventually i did get it quite flat and white not like how it's red and keloid here mm -hmm. and then i eventually um I, I just saw some i just thought of this so and a, it's kind of ironic an anonymous donor paid um for a bunch of us to get our scars removed so i don't even know who donated that money but um yeah that was like a was it like two or three thousand dollar operation and i was really stalling i didn't even know how to like make the appointment i have a friend who works in that industry she does like botox and, and stuff like that in a place that does plastic surgery and she spoke to the surgeon for me so i could go in and just show her and so i didn't have to like explain because i was i think i was subconsciously didn't want to be like okay so this is how i got this yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. so i had the appointment and she was like yeah you could probably you know um uh what's it called you could not sand it, laser it, and it would be mm. it would get fainter. So you, anyway, so she's like, but but you probably want to cut it off. You probably want to like you probably don't want Keith's initials there. I'm like, that's true. So she ended up basically cutting around it and then sewing it back together. So it's just gone. Wow. So I had it just like literally cut off my body. Awesome. And and now it's like totally gone. So that's my journey, and I'm so sorry. I need to run. Oh no! Don't um, don't don't be sorry. This was amazing. This was so wonderful. I'm so grateful that you answered and um yeah just so so happy uh about you know the work that you do in the world is just so important and i'm just so glad that we got to share this hour together just chen through it all oh thank you so much for reaching out i um i love talking to artists i think it's a special a special understanding of the journey so i yeah. appreciate your questions of course and uh where can people learn more about you and the work that you do so you can find me at Sarah Edmondson on Instagram and a little bit culty for Instagram. We also have our own website, a little bit culty.com. And there's lots of, we've got merch and people can leave us voicemails and ask us questions. I'm also part of hashtag I got out, which is the cult survivors equivalent of hashtag me too. And there's lots of great resources on that website also. And what am I forgetting? Oh, my book is on audible as well. I narrate it, which is kind of cool. If you want to have my voice in your ear for about nine hours. And, and that's it. Podcast is wherever you find podcasts. And we have like 80 plus episodes now. Amazing. Awesome. Well, yeah. thanks for doing this uh, again. We're just so, so very appreciative of taking the time. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. I just want to thank Sarah uh, for this amazing interview um, and, and the time that she, she shared with us and the vulnerability that she continues to share by, by telling her story. Yeah. Um, like I said before, um, make sure you you follow Sarah on all the socials, listen to the pod, read the book. It's incredible stuff. Uh, we're back next week with an all new episode. I've been Adam Ace. Christina Marinelli. And thank you for taking a ride on the New York Mystery Machine. Tell me how about for ghosts. Ooh.